You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. Welcome to Ono Lit Class, the podcast that's celebrating two full years of this ridiculous book and wiener show. You can't stop us. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. And uh, today, as befitting our two-year anniversary in an Ono Lit Class first, we have someone on the show who knows what they're talking about. <laughs> Hi, I'm Carla Maria Thomas, PhD. <laughs> yes, yeah, more... more appropriately known as Dr. Carla Maria Thomas, specializing in Old and Middle English language and literature, religious prose and poetry, manuscript studies, vernacularity and multilingualism, and the history of the English language. <laughs> I definitely didn't just copy and paste that off your faculty page. <laughs> I have to say, that, that sounds familiar. I think I wrote that. Wait <laughs> a minute. Um, but since we're friends, we get to call, we get to call Carla. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you guys have that. I appreciate that. <laughs> so, uh, Carla is here to add some much-needed academic authenticity to this merry-go-round of nonsense we call a podcast. And not just because she has various degrees in, in ye old-ass book words, but also because she is specifically knowledgeable about today's literary topic, which is... Beowulf! Beowulf! You could say it, too. Okay. Beowulf. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Beowulf. Beowulf. (laughs) Yes, Beowulf, a poem that is the oldest surviving epic written in English-ish. You want to kind of explain that one? Yeah, I mean, so the dating of Beowulf is very fraught. So the manuscript evidence comes from the late 10th to early 11th century, but based on the metrics and the language... Supposedly, you can date it too much earlier, maybe a couple hundred years earlier. I'm an agnostic, which a lot of people really dislike because you have to date Beowulf. No, we don't, we don't need to date Beowulf. But the consensus generally was it's a later poem. Uh-huh. I think it's more interesting to think about what the hell's going on in the poem as opposed to the date of it. Just generally, it's Old English. Why would you want to date Beowulf? He seems so nice. <laughs> you have to date Beowulf. It's your only way to get to the, the Gidish throne. Like, well, I mean, he seems nice, but is he really? Is he, though? I will pose this question. Who's the real monster of this poem? Hmm? <laughs> Society? Yeah, all of humanity. It's always, always all of humanity. It's true. Man is the real monster. Always, as we always cover. But yeah, no, so when, when people think of old age, they think of old English, old age. not old Jesus age. <laughs> when you think of old age, I think of Werther's original <laughs> and incontinence. And old English. So when people think of old English, they, they tend to think of Shakespeare plays, and that's that whole thing of people being like, Ugh, I can't understand like this old-timey English. And Elizabethan English can definitely be tough for a modern-day audience. Like, that's fair. But it's still discernible. Like, you can figure out what's going on if you, you read it, you know, carefully. But this was, even though even though we're not dating Beowulf, <laughs> it was still about five to six hundred years before Shakespeare was even born. Mm-hmm. And this, this version of English is so old that it's basically not English. 
Oh, oh, I totally lectured my, my mother-in-law's father over the dinner table once because he said something very similar to me. It is tell, tell me why I'm wrong. <laughs> it is the birthplace of, of modern English. It's the, the earliest iteration that we have of our, our language, um, where you have the combinations of different Germanic languages that invaded England, marrying together with some Scandinavian influence. So it doesn't sound like modern English. It sounds much more like German. I have some of the Old English Beowulf here, if you'd like for me to read it. Uh, yes. All right, so here are the opening lines. What we gardena in yer dagum, theor cuninga frim yfrunen, hutha ethelingus ellen fremadon. So. I'm not, not going to lie, that sounds like some sexy Lord of the Rings shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Tolkien was a medievalist and a philologist. He was influenced by Old Norse, Old English, Old Celtic languages to create his Elvish language. So. And he You're did, not wrong. <laughs> and he did have a hard-on for Beowulf, which we're yes. going to go into later. <laughs> Perfect. I was thinking how to train your dragon. <laughs> you know, it just evokes different things in different people. <laughs> but yeah, no, you can't just read that and tell me like, yeah, obviously English. Right. <laughs> yeah, add some French in there. Boom. Well, Modern. yeah, I mean, there are certain things in there that um, would make more sense if you kind of changed the spelling and then maybe gave it a modern pronunciation, like yer dagum. That's year days. Okay. So like years gone by. Right. right? And like the bygone days. Um, so like kuninga is where we get the word king. So oh. kuning was the earliest form we have of that word. So it just depends, you know, like once you see where it comes from, it makes more sense. But yeah, if you just see it off the bat or hear it off the bat, it doesn't make any sense. People are going to learn a thing on this episode. It's so exciting. So Beowulf is, uh, it's, a, it's an epic poem. Very epic. It's, it's very, oh, I'm going to get into it. very that. poem. It's most epic, quite poem. It's some 3,000 plus lines. Um, 3,182. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, RJ. And it's Epic, uh, because before becoming one of a long list of words permanently ruined by the internet, epic meant really long narrative of people kicking ass in various extraordinary and or superhuman ways, which sounds awesome, right? Like Beowulf fights a fucking dragon. Hell yeah. And uh, just for funsies, I, I found a checklist of what characteristics are necessary for something to be classified as an epic from the Handbook to Literature, 8th edition, which means that I Googled until I got to the primary source because having a primary source makes it sound like I did way more in-depth research than I actually did. <laughs> Wikipedia citations are your friends, kids. So the uh, the main characteristics of an epic are, in short, it begins in meteorites. So it skips exposition and just starts in the middle of the story and it's just like, fuck it, we'll explain as we go along. Keep up. Which, you know, so far so good. The setting spans multiple countries or even multiple worlds. Awesome. It begins with a statement of the theme, which seems less good because that sounds like a college freshman essay. No, a college freshman essay is since the beginning of time right. <laughs> or in today's world. Oh, God. See, I was thinking like, in this paper, I will argue that. I would actually prefer that over. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, it's in today's thing. society. <laughs> From the dawn of time. Oh, God. Yeah, <laughs> An epic also contains long lists, also known as an epic catalog, and those are those like, blah blah, begat so-and-so, and so-and-so, begat what's-his-face, and what's-his-face, stabbed himself in the eyes, because holy shit, this is so boring. Um, I know there's a lot of, like, sort of epic cataloging in, like, the Bible, where there's just whole books where it's just that. Yeah. And it happens, you get that in Beowulf, but that's mostly to establish genealogy, you know, the whole... Who gets to be part of which kingdom and rule which kingdom is kind of important in this context. So 
that's why that has that happens in Beowulf. I skip over so much of it. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> uh, it features long and formal speeches. Because nothing says epic like a, a speech that is both long and formal. So what I'm learning very quickly, <laughs> the Phantom Menace, epic. Absolutely. <laughs> it shows divine intervention on human affairs. So like the gods show up and, and do cool shit or maybe just deliver a long and formal speech. I mean, who knows? <laughs> and it features heroes that embody the values of the civilization, which, you know, makes sense. You're not going to tell an epic poem about like asshole Steve or something. And then it often sends the heroes to the underworld and or hell, which, you know, good. Builds character. Hmm. Yes, indeed. So we'll, we'll see how Beowulf stacks up in, in terms of epicness, epicosity. So I guess we'll start with RJ because so, this is usually the fastest one. Did you have to read Beowulf in school? Ooh, in my master's program. Okay. <laughs> Definitely not in high school or in undergrad. Oh, really? I read it both in high school and in undergrad. I did not. I didn't read it in anything. Oh. Yeah. In high school, I know that there were kids who had to assign and had to read it. Uh, mm-hmm. The teachers that I had did not assign it. He was horny for Shakespeare, so we just got Shakespeare. We didn't have to do Beowulf. So I read it on my own at some point mm. in college just because cause it was like, well, this is here. So, you know, normally, uh, this is the point where I would say before we talk about Beowulf, the the poem, we have to talk about who wrote Beowulf. Yeah. And RJ's going to tell us why that's slightly more complicated than usual. Oh, no. It depends how you want to think about it. Oh, dear Lord. Ah, yes. Beowulf, written by who scholars refer to as the Beowulf poet, as no name really seems to fit the bill. In short, though, we can imagine the Beowulf poet is named, well, anything we want. Or conversely, we can imagine parents popping out a baby and naming it Beowulf Poet. (laughs) (laughs) Of the Mr. and Mrs. Poet. (laughs) I mean, that would really be setting a kid up for a very specific job. However, this would not be without some very contemporary examples. So based on some casual interneting, to find some examples of parents naming their kids with apparently a very specific job in, uh, in mind. Well, we've, we've talked about Judge Learned Hand on the show yeah, before. Yeah, he's not even on the list. I'm like very oh. contemporary. Like people who are alive. Oh, gosh. Okay. They can hear this. <laughs> That's always awesome. How about litigation attorney, sue you? <laughs> that seems vaguely racist. Mm-hmm. Uh, how about meat department manager, Brad Slaughter? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you could either become a butcher or a murderer. <laughs> there is a group called Food for the Poor. Their CEO is named Robin Mafood. What were you Googling? <laughs> I was looking at the best names of history because yeah. these people are on there. Family physician, Dr. Achu. And how can we forget Chicago meteorologist, Stormfield. <laughs> That's kind of perfect. Those, <laughs> that is pretty good. Those parents nailed it. So yeah, let's assume the Beowulf poet was actually named Beowulf poet. Scholars do not know exactly when the poem of 3,182 lines was originally composed, as we've discussed. However, scholars are fairly certain that it must have been sometime before 1025, as that is around when it was put into the Noel Codex, which is the only extant copy of the poem that exists. There is no title for the poem in the Codex, rather it's been simply named after the the protagonist, Beowulf, which is, I don't know, kind of uninspired to me. I can just name it after, oh, this guy, sure. Oh, I mean, it's all about Beowulf, kind of. Is it? <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there? We'll get there. 
Uh, some background on the Noel Codex. It is part of a collection of poetic manuscripts. Given the academic dominance of Beowulf, the Noel Codex is sometimes referred to as the Beowulf Manuscript, despite it being home to other club thumpers like The Life of St. Christopher, Wonders of the East, and Letters of Alexander to Aristotle. Spoilers. It's E, F, and G. I will also add that, uh... Get dork. It also has the poem Judith in there, and it's the... Judith is technically the only poem of those that don't have an actual literal monster involved, but people like to call this like a collection of monster stories because what she does, you know, beheading Holofernes is a monstrous act done by a woman. And so that's one of the ways they try to think about the manuscript having some sort of cohesion. Just FYI. Evil women. <laughs> hey, mid- medieval evil women. Like badass woman, more like it. <laughs> medieval are they was, all was the beheading justified oh yeah okay then we're like cool, judith we're as that. in biblical judith neither of us know <laughs> jack all about the bible oh, this is the backstabber who oh no never mind oh you I'm heard judith didn't heard you judith. <laughs> i don't know judith. No, judith. <laughs> judith judith she just said it was a woman yeah. <laughs> in this version it is <laughs> so it's named the noel codex as it was owned by lawrence noel during the 1500s how do we know he owned it because he put his name on the cover that he put on the damn thing. I like that. You find other people's works and you may take a cover. This is RJ's. This is mine now. It's so, so white. White male privilege. This codex was combined and bound with another which contained works from the 12th century. The combined works were owned by a Sir Robert Cotton. Old Bob Cottontail, who kept the bound text in the 15th slot on the first shelf, shelf A, next to a bust of Emperor Vitellius, who was beheaded eight months into his emperorship in ancient Rome. All this is why the combined works were known as the Cotton Vitellius A15. And when you go to the British Jesus. Library to find this manuscript, that's what you tell them you want to see, not that they will ever let you see it. Ah, but you could see it online. You They've can, scanned. which you is can. why they say you can't see it. Plus, it's burned really badly in the cotton fire. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. Yeah, yeah okay, spoilers. Spoilers. Spoiler alert. If you thought the only action was in the story, you're mistaken. So if you ever reference something from Beowulf and you want maximum hipster cred, cite it as from being said by the Beowulf poet in Beowulf, which is found in the Noel Codex, which is found in the cotton in the cotton Vitellius A15. You can't even get it all out. It's a lot. You'll sound smart and oh so punchable. <laughs> <laughs> While the text was under Cotton's ownership, it was severely damaged during a fire in the library. All of the original pages suffered some kind of damage. Some pages worse than others, some became completely illegible. And as time passes on, the damage continues to worsen as the pages become more brittle and continue to deteriorate. The only saving grace is that there are three modern transcriptions from when the text was in better condition. Two of the transcriptions were from after the fire, but before the text had fallen apart like it has recently. One of the transcriptions is from before the fire and is considered to only have, quote, occasional errors in it. <laughs> la di da <laughs> So they, they, they put up a whole big stink of, no, you can't see it. But, like, it's not like they were taking good fucking care of it. It's set on fire. Well, that was it? from the 1800s. No, the 1700s, right? It's the 1800s. No, no. Shh. It's the, <laughs> the, 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 the one dude who won. I ruined jokes. I'm sorry. I no. know. It was the one dude who lit it on fire. Once oh. it 
became like official and taken away from him, it's been protected. I'm sure. It's, I just wanted to. It's make the one sure. dude who went to sleep without putting his fire out in his fireplace. And it wasn't just that manuscript. There were a whole bunch of others. The way they saved him was throwing him out the window. <laughs> As happens. <laughs> How much history has burned a because lot. of lazy asses? Or, you know, the um, dissolution of the monasteries. Thank you, Henry VIII. Yeah, we, we've talked a lot on the show about how, how much stuff's lost because it was burned either by edict, by accident, or by authors going, hey, when I'm dead, burn it. <laughs> if I've learned anything from Spaceship Earth, it smelled like melting crayon. <laughs> that was the, yeah, the burning of the library of uh, Alexandra smelled like crayons. <laughs> because of all the wax tablets? Yes. That's, a, that's good. I'll take that. <laughs> I've told you, people want that smell like in soap. Yes, you have, and that's really weird to me. <laughs> that is really weird. As for the history within the poem itself, most of the events take place during the 6th century, which is around the time Anglo-Saxons began migrating to jolly old England, the land of afternoon tea. <laughs> Every Germanic, Scandinavian, or otherwise East Anglican... Anglian. 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 Anglian Church. <laughs> Anglian yeah, I was culture. Anglian <laughs> culture seems to have some sort of claim to the tale of Beowulf. Maybe it's about King Alfred the Great, or King Knut, aka Seanut the Great, <laughs> or King, King Kong, the OK. Hey. Or maybe it originated with the Wolfigans. Wolfengas. Any idea? I don't even know what word you're talking about. All right. (laughs) W-U-F-F-I-N-G-A-S. Woofingas. 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 Or maybe more directly from the Giedish Woofings. W-U-L-F-I-N-G-S. Yeah. Woofings. 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 The poem itself does not distinguish between fact or fiction. Beowulf, the character, is not mentioned in any other text that researchers have ever come across, but many of the individuals and places referred to in the poem do appear to reference real-life equivalents, sometimes with the same exact name. All in all, given the movement of people and languages at the time of the poem's likely creation, it was likely a tale shared across many of people and languages, which explains why, from a simplistic point of view, it appears to be a pastiche of its environment. It's like the original remix machine. The comic book superhero movie or poem of its time. Actually, this made me look up what story has been adapted most in the last century. And unsurprisingly, it's Romeo and Juliet, which has been adapted 48 times across all artistic mediums, including 2011's masterpiece known as Nomeo and Juliet. You just wanted an excuse to bring that up. More no. surprising. More surprising no, more to me. More surprising. Was what was a distant second place with 27 adaptations in the last century? Any guesses? In the la- okay, so we're limiting, because I was about to say, because I know, like, Sherlock Holmes has, like, no, 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 we looked it up, it was Cinderella that had the most adaptations of all time, I think. Is it also Shakespeare? No. It's an Ono Lick class author, though. Oh, all right, okay. Uh, you got, like, five seconds. <laughs> all right, fine, I give up. The Three Musketeers. Uh, oh, yeah, no, that makes sense. I had no idea that has been adapted only less than Romeo and Juliet. I like, mean, it's Romeo and Juliet and then Three Musketeers. People love it. I can think of... Literally five move, just movie adaptation adaptations right now off the top of my head. So I'm actually not that surprised. <laughs> but so here's the thing with Beowulf. You could argue that it was adapted a lot from a lot of different stories and then kind of just stuck together to what we have now. Specifically, one of the theories as to Beowulf's origin as a story is that it was adapted from what they call a bear son's tale. The tale share a group of stories that share a pretty general motif. A hero is born with the strength of a bear. 
His bloodline can be traced back to bears. He and his mates must guard a building from some sort of horrible monster. The hero's mates are killed, but the hero survives, hurting the monster in the process. The hero gives chase into some sort of underworld where he fights more enemies. And in many of the stories, there are captive princesses, magical weapons, and betrayal of the hero by the hero's best friend. As we'll hear, some of these themes actually do show up in Beowulf and others do not. So some scholars argue that Beowulf is not a bear son's tale as it differs too much. If, however, Beowulf is an adaptation of this kind of tale, its origin could easily trace back to as early as the 7th century. The origin of Beowulf may never be solved. What we do know for sure is that not only has it become the bane of many a high school student or college student or grad student, but that it is now safe with the British Library. Actually, if you're interested, as I mentioned very quickly earlier, British Library hosts full scans of the quote-unquote original manuscript so you can see what it looks like for yourself, which has to raise your nerd cred at least 10 points if you do. Okay, it looks pretty cool. <laughs> I like the way that you did uh, original quote-unquote because uh, this is actually really important. It was likely oral before written down, mm -hmm. and so that just lends credit to the fact that it's multiple stories shoved into one plus other stories that come from Old Norse things and whatnot. So, yeah. And when you look it up, like, you could tell this is not the first time. Like, it's not like someone sat down and, like, scribbled in a notebook. I can yeah. write a tale. Because it's, like, written and penned in a very official, like, I have the tale and I'm going to copy it down <laughs> kind of way. Yeah. And so, clearly, this is one version that was written officially. This is this is the part that's kind of uh, hard to kind of suss out. There were two scribes and one scribe was clearly the one who trained the other scribe and went back and corrected the second scribe or the first scribe's blunders. So uh, because I don't actually work on the manuscript, I can't say what exactly they're fixing, but it could be that they had different copies or they had different like memories of the text or maybe his writing's just terrible. I don't know. Um, he's just going through like... Yeah, he's just, like, like fixing that, his put students. These five, put these good $5 adjectives yeah. in there. <laughs> so like, but yeah, we do know there are at least two scribes that wrote it. That's interesting. Yeah. Just two, two people writing over each other. Oh, the one other thing about, uh, before we actually kind of go into the, the story, is, um, so you said the bear, bear son yep. thing. And so Beowulf is bear, but it's a weird bear, because it's like... Bear Grylls? Yes, it's Bear Grylls. Does he drink his own pee? Constantly, and everyone's just like, Beowulf, what are you doing? And he's just like, ah. <laughs> um, it's like this weird, like, port, what's it, what's it, where, portmanteau? Portmanteau. That? that, yeah. Yeah. Thank God you're here. <laughs> what was it? It's like, bee wolf. Yeah, I, I think it depends, too, on um, which version of Beo we're going with, because Beo could also come from Bayon, which means to be. To be a wolf? Okay. That makes be. more sense than, like, bees, wolves, bear. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I could, I could see, like, maybe bear wolf, but <laughs> I, I find that one weird, too. I prefer bayo as in the verb. How's Scott Bayo fit into all this? <laughs> uh, not well. <laughs> all right. All right, so without further ado, Beowulf, as it is wolfed. So, yes, like that. <laughs> So this story that's, you know, called Beowulf, because it's about a guy named Beowulf, opens with Beowulf, right? No. <laughs> no, the answer is, is no, of course not. Don't be an idiot. <laughs> starts off with his friends down at the club. <laughs> it's, it's, no. Uh, it starts with the narrator telling us about these guys called the Spear Danes, who I would imagine are Danish people who use spears. 
I would imagine so too. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm just going to look at you every time I'm not sure of something. Now this does, it's a good place to break because I do want to tell you how I believe every version of Beowulf should start. Okay. And it should be with a song. <laughs> um, See, a song came to me that there's a song already written that fits perfectly with Beowulf. Okay, well I guess before I get any further into this... Break it out. Let's I don't know if I should over. sing. Get this over with. A tale as old as time. <laughs> True as it can be. Then somebody No, nope, Yeah, I skipped the line already. They're barely, oh, barely they, even friends. This is why it sounds dirty. They're barely even friends. Then That's somebody so bends. Unexpectedly. Yeah, just a little change. Small to say the least. <laughs> Both a little scared. Neither one prepared. Beauty and the beast. Clearly... This is about Beowulf. How do you figure? Beowulf is the beauty, nice blonde, long hair, <laughs> strong man, and then there's the beast. Actually, there's multiple beasts. Or, I mean, you could do it the other way, right? Why would you do this? Grendel's time? mom, if she gets it, she's the beauty, and then uh, Beowulf's the beast. It works both ways. <laughs> the song was written for Beowulf. Yep. I get it now. And Beauty and the Beast is just a ripoff. Thanks, Alan Menken. <laughs> You gotta read between the lines, Meg. <laughs> you gotta listen to the story they're not telling. <laughs> the notes they don't play. <laughs> Hey everybody, it's your favorite bodiless being of pure sound, Megan. Here to tell you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful, beautiful, mysterious patrons. Our, our most recent ones, and then a, c- a couple other ones who came in at the, the last round. I just kind of want to say them again because I feel bad that they, they only got, you know, one shot at it. Or I forgot to do their, you know, Twitter handles. And that includes Zachary, The Narcissist Cookbook, Mackenzie at Space Bras, Elizabeth, M-E, that's sort of you know, me, but not me, and Tiffany at Logic Mermaid, who you all can thank because we, we lost a couple patrons and... She brought it back up to 50, so thank Tiffany at Logic Mermaid. Thank you. Also brought to you by Simplecast, which is the hosting service that we use for the show, and I like it a lot. And you, if, if you follow our show on Twitter, you will frequently see me gushing about, like, cool webinars and whatnot that they do, and they are not paying me to do that. I just like a lot of the things that that they do that they're very convenient super easy the interface is great and yeah they do all these extra little webinars that are not just for like here's the best way to use the website but also about like podcasting in general and like everybody on the support team is super responsive and they'll chat with you on twitter also like they're just a cool bunch of folks so if you're thinking about starting a podcast and you're just like i don't know where should i do that thing simplecast is good it's 12 bucks a month and they're rolling out a whole bunch of really cool new shit so that you'll have like an actual like website it'll be like a one-stop shop thing it's it's very sexy and uh if that sounds cool to you you can click the referral link in the show notes and you'll get your first two weeks free that will happen no matter how you sign up for it but if you use the referral link simplecast will give me some money which would be nice you know it'd be cool um this week's pod pal is the sometimes geek podcast it's you know being a geek is tough. It's exhausting to do it all the time. It's a lot. Takes it out of you. Especially if you're a gamer geek, because there's lots of video games happening, I assume. I don't know. I'm still playing Super Mario Odyssey, but that's why Derek is here, to give you all the video game news that you need in little bite-sized episodes. He cuts out 
all the bullshit and uh, broing down or whatever and just gives you what you need to know about game stuff. I don't know about video games. I'm going to let him tell you. As a geek with a life outside of gaming, it can be hard to stay informed. The Sometimes Geek Podcast is your weekly update of all the major video game news, brought to you with the insight of an everyday gamer. Episodes are kept short and to the point, so you have more time to spend playing games instead of reading about them. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and at SometimesGeek.com. The Sometimes Geek Podcast, because we can't be geeks all the time. So, back to those Spear Danes, though. Uh, the king of those folks is Shield Sheafson which is an awesome name. So this ancient hero, Shield Sheafson, goes from being a lowly orphan to a, a mighty king. Sounds cool, should have been its own poem maybe. And he has a son named Beo. So that's, that's gotta be baby Beowulf, right? Nope. No. Beo grows up and is also a mighty king. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, so then he's Beowulf's dad. That, that would make sense, right? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, for those of you keeping count, we're two generations in and still no Beowulf. Dude, have you read the Bible? <laughs> <laughs> the main character doesn't show up to, like, the end. 80% through. Maybe that's why I haven't read the Bible. I have a very short attention span. There's a lot of context, a lot of build-up. So, uh, Beowulf's king for a while, and then he dies, and the next king is a dude named Half-Dane, which is descriptive, I guess. It's it's no shield chiefson. Half-Dane is also not Beowulf's dad, but one of his kids is Hrothgar. Hrothgar. Yeah. Hrothgar. Yeah. And Hrothgar is at least actually the semi-main character in this goddamn story. <laughs> Jeez. Hmm. Uh, once we've heard about who literally all of his fucking five siblings married, because we give a shit about that, uh, Hrothgar becomes king and is pretty good at being king to the point where he lives to be old and useless, which was a big thing in the time period this poem was written in, because you, you wanted to die in a, a bloody blaze of glory. Because if you live long enough to get old, it means you were a little bitch who didn't go, like, hard enough in battles and stuff. Yeah, but it's also kind of like there's, like, a flip side to that. Because if you're, like, the Thane Lord, you're not supposed to die in battle. Your your little Thanes are supposed to die for you. So that's kind of a double-edged sword. And how about if you're the best? You just kill everybody. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, think, I think the idea is that, like, if you're the best, you should just be constantly, like, seeking out bigger, better foes. Which factors into this. LeBron. Right. Yeah. <laughs> So, nonetheless, Shrothgar feels like a real cool guy. And real cool guys need equally cool places to throw parties and get hammered in. Also known as a mead hall, because that's what everyone at the time was getting hammered on. So he builds... Herat? Herat, yeah. Thank you. (laughs) He builds Herat Hall and proceeds to throw sick parties, which would be great, except... Except... Except that much like our former downstairs neighbor, DJ, practices DJing at 1am on a Tuesday, Hrothgar's mead hall parties are loud, obnoxious, and piss off the neighbors. Oh, really, one neighbor. But that neighbor is a demon, so, you know, it's it's still a problem. And to be fair, it's the fact that it's a religious song that pisses him off. Supposedly. It's true, yeah. They, they say that it, it hurts him more because they're singing about... The creation. Because <laughs> he's a demon. Um, and that demon is Grendel who is some kind of weird monster descended from Cain. For, for people who don't know about the Bible, we're going to have to talk about it a lot. Um, <laughs> uh, Cain is a guy in the Bible who murdered his brother because... reasons. And I looked it up. I did. Quote, 
The narrative never explicitly states Cain's motive for murdering his brother. Some traditional interpretations consider Cain to be the originator of evil, violence, or greed. So Grendel is descended from evil is what we're meant to take away from that. And he's been out in this marshy swampland for like a bazillion years, presumably minding his own business until Hrothgar built his party house and started driving Grendel crazy. Like, the guy just wants some peace and quiet while he chills in his swamp. <laughs> he kind of sounds like Shrek. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a really great comparison. Get out of my swamp. I mean, it's perfect. Does he have his own donkey? He might. I hope so. Or likely <laughs> ate the donkey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This would be a, a Shrek who would put up with a lot less. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is he an all-star now? No, no unfortunately. Not even a little. <laughs> so it gets so bad that Grendel takes matters into his own hands, skipping over sending Hrothgar a passive-aggressive letter about how some people actually have to go to work the next day and maybe don't appreciate listening to someone throwing down at 1 a.m. on a Tuesday. And goes right to storming Harrett Hall in the dead of night and straight murdering 30 dudes. And like, look, I can appreciate some noise-related neighbor rage. Like, I can empathize with Crindle. But killing 30 people sends a pretty strong message and probably doesn't need any further measures. But Crindle's just getting started. He proceeds to spend the next 12 fucking years murdering anyone in the vicinity of Harrod Hall after dark. That's some dedicated revenge. Yeah, you think he'd get, like, tired or uh, get a hobby or... Or they'd run out of men. That, too. <laughs> Someone should have built a wall. Oh, no. <laughs> I hate you. Um, nothing can stop him. Not fighting him, not trying to bribe him or reason with him or anything. Everyone just gets extremely murdered and eventually abandons Harrod Hall and Hrothgar becomes the subject of a bunch of sad songs about how he's a shitty king who can't deal with one lousy swamp demon. (laughs) Take care of your house, man. (laughs) So these stories travel far and wide, including across the sea to a place called Geatland, which is Swedish? Yeah, it's on Sweden, so it's like really not that far away from Denmark. Little ocean. Just, just like a little hop, skip, yeah. and a jump. They're all named Sven there. Yes, they are all named Sven, except <laughs> the ones that aren't. Anyway, adding Geatland, a mysterious Geat warrior, also known as the mightiest warrior on Earth. Gosh, I wonder, I wonder who that could be. He hears the story of Grendel and is just like, cool, sounds fun. Like, come on, Geats, road trip. And they they sail across the sea to the Danish coast. And then there's this whole scene where there's like a guard on lookout. And he's like, hey, who are you? Like, what's going on here? Explain yourself. And our mysterious Geet warrior who just has bravery and charisma out the ass is like, I'm Beowulf. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm sure it's exactly how he said it. Yeah, he's like, I'm here to kill your monster. But first, here's my entire genealogy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You have to establish yourself, you know. And Carla is not joking, because after that, that badass shit, it takes like a hundred back and forths between Beowulf and various Hrothgar lackeys where they do this, where it's like, well, my dad was so-and-so, king of so-and-so, blah, blah, blah. Yep. (laughs) For them to actually talk to each other, because, you know, things were getting dangerously spicy there for a second. Well, they didn't have 23andMe back in the day. You had to keep track of this shit. (laughs) Eventually, through what I assume is just lots of charts. Yeah, basically. <laughs> uh, Hrothgar realizes that he knew Beowulf's dad, Edgethal. Thank you. Edgethal. Means edge servant. No, not edge lord. Edge as in, edges in like, the, the edge of a sword. Servant of the sword? Yeah. That's actually really cool. 
Edward is funnier, though. <laughs> yeah, totally. So he decides that because of that, Beowulf can come talk to him, which is pretty ballsy. Like, oh yeah, I guess I'll see you, guy who wants to kill the monster that's been murdering my people for a dozen years. Like, <laughs> I suppose I can block out some time for you. <laughs> and uh, just because he's apparently that extra, as we will come to know, Beowulf vows that not only will he kill Grendel, he's going to do it without any weapons. Or clothes. Or clo- Thank you for clearing that up, because I was going <laughs> to ask you for clarification on that, because I didn't want just people thinking I was a pervert. Uh, yeah, no no one asked him to do that. Hrothgar even is, talks about how, like, Grendel has killed every single hero that's, like, popped out of the woodwork promising to slay the monster. So even with a sword and pants, Beowulf's got his work cut out for him. But no, like, he's committed to fighting with his bare hands and, apparently his bare ass. Yep. <laughs> so Hrothgar's into it, and he throws a party to celebrate, which seems a little backwards to me. Like, wouldn't it, wouldn't it make more sense to wait till after Beowulf fulfills his pledge and kills the party-hating monster mm. before you bust out the confetti cannons? Yeah, you party before, <laughs> party during, party after, <laughs> party non-stop. Party, party, party. Party, party, party. Either way, they have a big party, and this guy, Unferth, does that mean anything? I can't remember, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I guess all of them mean something. It means un He's got no firth. He gets pissy about Beowulf just like strolling into the kingdom like, Ooh, I'm Beowulf. I'm going to kill your demon with my big manly hands. Look how cool I am. And he tries to heckle him by saying that he heard Beowulf lost a swimming contest to someone named Brekka. And if he can't even swim good, then like what kind of warrior is he even? <laughs> That's, that's the metric, apparently. Yeah, well, this also instigates the boasting that Beowulf does, which is actually part of the cultural necessity. Like, if you're going to go off and do some brave thing, you actually have to boast about it beforehand because it's almost like a an oral contract. Like, I'm going to do this thing, and then you have to go off and prove that you're going to do it. Ah, yeah, because yeah. Yeah, Be- Beowulf boasts a whole fucking lot. But yeah, it's, it's supposed to be interpreted, I know, as like a positive yeah. thing. We're supposed to like... That he's just like, yeah, I'm fucking Beowulf. <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm starting to notice a lot of parallels here to the Super Bowl. <laughs> all the teams partied like yesterday, then they don't fly off. They're all talking about how we're going to win. We're going to bring a championship. It's an oral contract. It's an oral contract. Tom Brady equals Beowulf. Oh, I am not touching that. Okay, I did a search for Firth. For you, in the online Bosworth Toller Old English Dictionary, Firth means honest or honorable, so Unferth means unhonest. Oh, that makes sense, because, yeah, he's a little, he's a little yeah. shit. Oh, yeah. Look at that. Yeah. Like, before we move on. More Tom, or, Tom Brady winning the Super Bowl naked. Yeah, more <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's where I was going to jump back to. God, we talked about Tom Brady in the last episode, too. Cultural touchdown. Uh, he is our Beowulf. Uh, no, the Ono Liklas does not condone the views presented in this podcast vis-a-vis Tom Brady. Hey, remember, kiss your kids right on the mouth. Kiss your Tom Brady square on the lips. Um, so Beowulf does his his boast, his answer, which out of the, the cultural context sounds like the biggest fucking lie in the world, but we're meant to take it as fact. He tells Unferth that A, him, him and Brecco were swimming in full armor with swords. <laughs> Because naturally, rust did not exist yet, <laughs> as one it's does. Fun. And and they were neck and neck. They were going at it, and then a sea monster pulled Beowulf underwater, just, just out of nowhere. It just happened. But then Beowulf killed it, and then he killed eight more. Like it wasn't just enough to be like, nah, I lost the race because I was killing a sea monster. It's like, no, I killed that sea monster. Then I killed eight more fucking sea monsters, and that's why I lost the race. <laughs> exactly. We're gonna go big, go big. <laughs> 
He does point out, though, that Unferth maybe shouldn't be calling out who is and isn't a kick-ass warrior, because, like, if Unferth is so great, why the fuck hasn't he killed Grendel? Yeah, indeed. <laughs> maybe shut up. <laughs> exactly. Because he's into it. <laughs> yeah. You know what? No. He gets not, off. Let's not unpack that. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, the party ends, and everyone goes to bed, and Hrothgar leaves Beowulf and the other Geats alone in Herit Hall to wait for Grendel. Beowulf takes off his armor and his pants in preparation for the fight. So Grendel shows up, he chews on one of Beowulf's buddies, and they wrestle a while, and the other Geats try to help by stabbing Grendel, only to find out that swords can't even slice through his skin. So, good call Beowulf, apparently. (laughs) We get the majority of the fight from Grendel's perspective, interestingly. And that's kind of done so that we can know, like, just how scared he is of Beowulf. And and just that he really regrets getting into this fight, and he wants to go home. (laughs) And this is meant to show Beowulf is, like, larger than life and superhumanly strong, but it mostly just kind of makes me feel bad for Grendel. (laughs) Yeah, especially the way Grendel ends up dying. Yeah, because Beowulf tears one of Grendel's arms off, and then the monster just kind of goes back to the swamp to bleed out and die. Yeah, supposedly with his mom crying. Yep. R.I.P. Grendel. You should have just filed a noise complaint. <laughs> uh, so as an aside, something interesting about Grendel that I didn't mention before is that he's never clearly described in the text. Like, he's dark, he's shadow, he's evil. So there's a lot of debate over just what the hell he is and how humanoid he may or may not be. I can't remember if it's Grendel or Grendel's mother or both of them, but the poem in the original, it describes them as human-shaped or man-shaped. So they're at least humanoid in like looking at afar. At one point, I think he's referred to as a wretched, a wretched man. Another time, he's described as a grim ghost, a grim ghost or spirit. So in some way, he is human-ish, and in other ways, he's not. And then, of course, on top of that, Grendel's mother may be something else entirely because she's never described as connected to Cain. So she may not be human like Grendel is at all. It's real confusing. (laughs) Very confusing. So a lot of illustrations and adaptations of the story will depict Grendel as like a weird giant. Usually they make him fucking huge. Uh, Troll, goblin, Bigfoot looking thing. Like bipedal. And that's that's the other weird thing. In the original Old English, we actually have words for like elves and ogres and, and trolls stuff, and, and, stuff. Trolls, and they're never actually used to describe Grendel. So yep. Grendel is something different. And, you know, probably a hybrid, which makes it even more depressing for him. Yeah. He belongs nowhere. Dick Cheney. <laughs> <laughs> There's a mental image I never wanted. Uh, I'm gonna clear that out of my system. So, uh, this one, this one guy, this one scholarly type dude uh, named Bill Cooper has what is probably the hottest take on Grendel's appearance and just what he might be. So he cites the frequency with which the text refers to Grendel like gnawing on dudes and and committing lots and lots of mouth-based murder, or frequently drawn to the mouth. Mm -hmm. And along with the fact that his arms are a noted weak spot, that his jaws are real strong and could chew you up, but his arms are are not great and they're easily torn off. So he figures Grendel has a big old mouth and shitty tiny arms. Combine this with the whole swords can't pierce his super hard hide thing and according to Cooper, it's fairly obvious that Grendel is a bipedal reptile, namely a dinosaur. Perhaps even a T-Rex. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe a raptor, right? If it's like big, but big enough for that, or small enough for them to actually grab certain parts of it, I'd go with raptor. Yeah. <laughs> Grendel is a velociraptor. Oh, shit, it's, um... Which is a great mental image, and I love it. <laughs> What's the raptor from Rugrats? Oh, uh, reptar. Reptar. 
He's not a raptor, though. He's, he's like a Godzilla. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Beowulf, dick swinging in the wind, holds up Grendel's potentially reptilian severed arm as a trophy and proof that he's just the most kick-ass guy ever. And everyone's happy, and they have another sick party, and Hrothgar showers Beowulf with lots of gifts and money. Uh, there's, a, there's a long bit here where we get a story from a minstrel about Danish history, and we're going to skip it because I don't care. Wow. <laughs> it's really long. It's really long. And it's mostly just about lineages. Danish history matters. There, there are so many scholars I know who would cry right now. They probably wouldn't be listening to this <laughs> podcast anyway. Well, one of them might because she's my friend and I might tell her about it. Okay. <laughs> well, um, no, it's fine. Carla's friend, we are very sorry. <laughs> we are sure the Danish history related by the minstrel is extremely important. <laughs> There's only so much time on this podcast. Fair. So everything's awesome and people feel safe sleeping in Harrit Hall once more. Except... Except the mint day. Any guesses? The dun, arm. Dun, dun. Yeah, the arm. The arm, the arm comes to life. It's, it's thing. thing. It's thing. It's thing. And it, it throttles uh, Beowulf to death. Um. <laughs> Except that Grendel, as, as we've mentioned a few times now, had a mommy who, who has no name. No. Why, why would she ever be given something like that? Depending on your sources, she may have been anything from a giant dinosaur to a sexy lady with high heels for feet. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you, Zemeckis. But uh, no matter what she is, she is pretty pissed about her son's murder. And so she goes to Herod Hall to fuck shit up. While Beowulf is conveniently somewhere else. He's not there. Where is he? I don't know. Maybe he's out having a pee. But he's not there. And Grendel's mom breaks into the hall and does a whole bunch of murder before grabbing Grendel's arm and leaving. And Hrothgar is just like, are you fucking kidding me? Why? But Beowulf's pretty chill about the whole thing. He's just kind of like, all right, guess I'm going to go kill her too. And Hrothgar's like, but you could die. And Beowulf just kind of shrugs and is like, hey, man, you got to die of something. Could be slipping in the shower. Could be a horrible demon monster. <laughs> it is what it is. You've got to mention he looked over his shoulder, put down his sunglasses and said that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> hey, man. Gotta die of something. I don't know why I took my glasses off for effect. This is an audio medium. <laughs> so Hrothgar tells Beowulf about the place where he's pretty sure G-Mom lives based on local legends and weird shit happening nearby. It's a marshy, misty lake that's said to be bottomless. And at night, the water burns like fire. So like, yeah, this seems like a good place to start looking. That's actually one of our favorite hour. I'm like speaking in like royal we terms here. Anyway, one of my favorite and many other scholars' favorite phrases in Beowulf <laughs> you, is... You represent the scholar yes, hive the mind. We, <laughs> actually, medievalist hive mind. It's something we do on Facebook all the time. But fear on flood is very difficult to interpret, which is the old English. Fire on or in or under flood, which is water. This could be fire on top of the water. This could be fire under the water, at the bottom of the water. It could be an image and be gold shimmering at the bottom of the water. So we don't actually know what fear on flood actually means. I like to think it's an image that maybe it's like the, the mouth of hell or something. Like, like not literally the mouth of hell, but kind of representing this because she lives in this watery underworld that's terrifying and she's a water demon and there's this connection to the fiends of hell. So, yeah. No, that sounds cool as hell. <laughs> Water and mouth of hell. Really, the only thing that was disappointing in that was, or it could just be gold stuff under the water. Like, that's disappointing. Everything else sounds dope. That's, that's an interpretation that I don't particularly care for. But yeah. that's because I like I like ideas of hell and damnation. Because <laughs> I really like hell. Yeah, I, I 
gotta say, whoever interprets it that way is lame. <laughs> Based on my elementary school education of the Oregon Trail, it's currently just a hot spring. <laughs> oh no, you might be on, you might be onto something there. The medievalists—they're going to come for you. So when they get there, they uh, they find the head of one of the uh, murdered dudes by the edge of the water. And also the water itself is just filled to the brim with angry sea monsters thrashing around their their tentacles or what have you. And Beowulf and Co. are all just like, yep, that's a demon lake, all right. <laughs> and uh, Beowulf decides that actually they might want to use a sword and keep his pants on for, for this fight. <laughs> yeah, it's actually a fairly elaborate description of him like arming himself to fight Grendel's mother in the same way that he was unarming himself and disrobing himself to fight Grendel. It's very odd, and there are many different interpretations as to why that might be. Very improper to fight a woman with your dick out. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so he puts on this whole chainmail deal, and Unferth is like, here, take my cool special sword to use, because I'm not going in there. (laughs) Maybe you can use it. And Beowulf jumps in the water, and then spends the better part of a day sinking to the bottom. Because he's Aquaman, I guess. <laughs> or maybe all the geats had gills. <laughs> Big lungs. <laughs> well, you know, he's got the strength of ten men or something like that, so maybe he's got the lung capacity of multiple men it's as well. The lung capacity of way more than ten. <laughs> yeah, way more than ten. But we're, we're just going to go with it, because like this is the part of the poem where things get pretty awesome. We get, we get a good fight. So Grendel's mom senses that someone is in her spooky, watery lair, and she finds Beowulf, and she tries to grab him and, like, sink her claws into him, but uh, his armor keeps him safe. But she still has him, and so she drags him to the center of her lair where he gets attacked by a bunch of sea monsters who cluster on him, and they, they tear his armor to shreds, and they're just, like, fucking going at him. And he manages to escape, and he pops into an underwater cave where... He sees Grendel's mother, and he swings Unferth's sword at her, getting her right in the head, which, if you remember the Grendel fight, because apparently Beowulf does not, <laughs> does jack shit, because swords can't pierce that strong, sexy monster skin. Nope, not at all. So it's like, it's like Beowulf, you just, you had that fight like a day ago, man. <laughs> Short-term memory. Or maybe he thought he got it from Dad. <laughs> And Beowulf's just like, all right, back to punching it is. And he feels like this is the more honorable way of doing things anyway. And uh, you know who don't give a shit about honor? Grendel's mom, baby. Because she whips out a big fucking knife and stabs Beowulf with it. And it's and what's, what's left of his chainmail armor is the only thing that keeps him from becoming a fucking human shish kebab. As this is happening... Beowulf spots a convenient deus ex machina, a big old fuck-off Final Fantasy Japanese RPG-sized sword. (laughs) Just a a cloud-strife sword. Um, And he grabs it, and he slices her in the neck, which now works for some reason. Presumably because the sword is cool and and not shitty, like Unferth's shitty sword. But uh, I'm sure there's there's, there's an actual reason that I just didn't... I don't know that we're ever actually given a reason, actually. But I feel validated. So he does kill her. And uh, now that with uh, G-Mom dead, Beowulf explores the cave and finds Grendel's corpse. And is just like, this is mine now. And cuts its head off, which is gross. Like, it's a severed head from a corpse that's been dead a couple days, lying at the bottom of a swamp. It's gonna be nasty. And uh, so Beowulf cuts Grendel's head off, and a couple things happen. One, the sword melts. Because Grendel's blood is poison. 
so another thing that happens when Beowulf cuts uh, Grendel's head off is that the water in the lake freaks out and, like, surges all the blood from Grendel's neck hole, which, mm-hmm. gross, uh, to the surface of the lake, which makes all of Beowulf's pals think that he was killed. And that's, that's his blood. And they get all sad. And, like, in Disney movies where they, they do the death fake out, and mm-hmm. Beowulf pops out of the lake with his fun new souvenir, and is like, I'm alive! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it makes me wonder, if Grendel's blood could melt the sword, why would they think it's the same kind of blood? Does it, is it still the same color, even though it's a metallic burning substance? That is a very good question. Because a lot of times, in like at least in like modern adaptations of monster blood, it's like blue or, or green. green. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to assume that they they were probably just like <laughs> it's it's coming up in a mo- in like this horrible <laughs> nightmare hell lake. It's probably gonna look weird no matter what. That is fair. And if we're going to assume it's anybody's blood, we're going to think it's the guy who lost and is dead now. Because that was the more likely outcome in their minds. Pessimists. Yeah. Well, they didn't believe in the power of Beowulf. He, so he, so he, he did it. Yay. And Hrothgar's like, I was a lousy king and I couldn't fix my own demon problem. And you're the coolest, best warrior ever. Let's have like three more parties to celebrate. And I think that's your problem, Hrothgar. That your solution to, to any problem is to throw a party at it. But but whatever. The monsters are dead. Everything's coming up Beowulf. And, and everyone at Herod Hall gets a solid murder-free night's sleep for once. After 12 years. <laughs> uh, after this... Beowulf and the Geats go back home, where his king, Hagelak, Hialak, it means, oh, it has many meanings. Hia means mind, spirit, or heart, soul. Lak can mean battle, war, or a gift, or offering. So it could be like a mind gift, a heart (laughs) battle, right? Like, take your pick, but yes. I'm I'm feeling the ambiguity on that one. (laughs) I'm into it. So yes, he comes back to his king, Elak. Thank you. <laughs> and Elak is, is waiting like, so how was spring break? You do anything fun? And Beowulf's like, sit down and I'll tell you all about it. And he does. Like he gives a full fucking recap. Hey, hey, narrator. Hey, hey, Beowulf poet. <laughs> I don't want to tell you how to do your job, but we were there. Mm-hmm. We read it. We got it. And now you're getting the highlight reel. That's like when you're watching a a show or something and and they give you a flashback to something that happened like 10 minutes ago. Right. Well, since the commercial break. (laughs) And we're back. (laughs) Plus, from what you tell me, you saw the fight from Grendel's point of view. So now you get it from Beowulf's. Which is pretty much just like, I was awesome. So blah, blah, blah. The king dies at some point. Who cares? Beowulf becomes king. And rules over Geatland for 50 years. So now he's old as hell. Which, remember, is, is kind of bad. Because he's sad. Because he's just old. And, you know, that's that's how Hrothgar's happen. But enough about Beowulf. Let's talk about a dragon. Yes. Yeah, dragons. Sean Connery? <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> oh, what's that? Dragonheart. That's yeah. it. You get to do it. Do what? The voice. I don't remember anything he says in Dragonheart. He says Beowulf. No, he doesn't. Come get this. Yeah, come get this shit, Beowulf. <laughs> there you go. So like most dragons, he sounds like Sean Connery, or Benedict Cumberbatch, as the case may be, and uh, he has a big old hoard of gold that he keeps around, because hashtag aesthetic. Uh, one day, a poor slave on the run from their master sneaks in and steals some, because I guess they lack any kind of basic self-preservation instincts, you know? You see a big sleeping dragon, like, nah, this will, I'm just, he'll never, he'll never know. It's gonna be great. Well, slave life is pretty bad. <laughs> you take your chances. Eh, fair. So the dragon don't like that. 
and it deals with its feelings by torching the land and murdering people, as dragons are wont to do. And Beowulf, even though at this point he's less Chris Hemsworth and more Christopher Plummer, is not scared of this dragon, but instead, like, super hyped to kill the hell out of it. Which the narrator immediately shoots down with this, like, great arrested development kind of thing where they're just like, actually, the dragon's gonna kill the hell out of Beowulf. <laughs> Which is pretty funny, but kind of a boner killer in terms of, like, creating suspense. Like, you just spoiled your own story, dude. They want you to prepare yourself. <laughs> Get ready, y'all. Well, it's also kind of a habit of medieval poets of the time too like just so you know this is gonna be a twice sad story about tragedy here and tragedy there spoilers it's like it's like the opposite of that scene in the princess bride where they pause things and the grandpa's like princess buttercup does not get eaten by eels at this time <laughs> i just wanted you to know it's like actually beowulf is totally going to die yeah exactly yeah you see it's because it's you know, it's a book or a poem and not a movie. This is where you know, things would start slowing down, you know, like fade to black and white. The music would get real heavy, and you're like, oh shit, <laughs> oh, no. it's not gonna end well here. Right? And you go, oh no. Oh no. <laughs> they just come out and tell you. Yeah, so, so Beowulf takes 11 other warriors to go find the dragon's lair, also pressing the thief into service as well. And if 13 dudes, one of whom is a thief, storming a dragon's lair filled with treasure kind of sounds a lot like the Hobbit. Well it, well, it does. You're right. Tolkien fucking loved Beowulf, and he used to scream lines from it in, in Old English at his students to terrify them. <laughs> so they find the dragon's lair, and, and Beowulf suddenly has a bad feeling about how this is all going to go down, and his life flashes before his eyes in excruciating detail. <laughs> A tale as old as time. <laughs> <laughs> True as it can be. Uh, suffice to say... Beowulf was a cool guy who did a whole bunch of awesome shit. You know, in case you hadn't realized that yet. Uh, he tells his men that his only regret is no longer being young and jacked enough to fight the dragon with his bare hands and dick like a fucking lunatic, <laughs> and that he has to use a sword. And so they go to fight the dragon. And as the narrator was nice to tell us ahead of time, it does not go well. The dragon burns their whole shit up, and Beowulf has to retreat for the first time ever in his life. Everyone runs away, except this guy, w Wiglaf. Wiglaf? Wiglaf. Wiglaf. Rice Pilaf. Wiglaf um, <laughs> stays by Beowulf's side because he's just ride or die that way. And Wiglaf calls the cowering soldiers well, cowards, as you would. <laughs> and he tries to help Beowulf by giving him a pep talk about how he's fucking Beowulf and he can do anything and he can kill this dragon. And Wiglaf believes in him, gosh darn it. But then Wheelock gets attacked, and his shield gets burned up, and, and Beowulf is all inspired. And he's like, hell yeah, I am Beowulf. I'm going to save Wheelock. Taste my blade, dragon. Ah! And then he breaks his sword, trying to stab the dragon, and it chomps him on the neck. Like you do. Womp womp. Wheelock at least takes advantage of this moment to stab the dragon in the stomach, so then Beowulf can finally kill the scaly motherfucker by pulling out a knife and plunging it in the dragon's side. Hell yeah! Where, where the fuck has Wheelock been this whole time? Like, he rules. Just waiting, biding his time, coming into the limelight when the time is right, you know, strategic. Mm. This was not his story. <laughs> no, it, 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 it ought to have been. I, I want to read the Epic of Wheelof. That one got burnt Aww. to a crisp. It was there. It was in Swat 16 on the shelf. Ah, that bummer. 
So the dragon is dead, but now Beowulf is dying because not only is he bleeding out from getting neck bit, the bite was also poison because it, you know, it just takes that much to bring our boy B down. Uh, Wheelaf tries to like wash out the wound as if that's going to help. And Beowulf's like, it's cool. I've been an awesome king and led a dope ass life. Hashtag no regrets. Now go grab some of that treasure so I can look at it before I die. And Wheelaf complies and Beowulf looks at all that gold and is like, hell yeah. Also, once I'm dead, make sure they build me a crazy huge funeral pyre so that everyone for miles around and even ships at sea will be able to see it and know just how fucking rad I was. <laughs> and Beowulf dies. And Wheelaf bitches out the other geats for abandoning their king like a bunch of weenies. And then Beowulf gets his huge enormous funeral pyre. The end, Finn. sort of, because there's also a bunch of stuff about how the kingdom's going to destabilize without a strong king and there's going to be a war, but who gives a shit? The main character's dead. It's over. This is one of the things that's actually really interesting about the poem is with the fire going and like the smoke going up into the sky or whatever, there's like confusion about what that means. Like the line is, Hevenum recha suele. Heaven swallowed the smoke. Oh, man. So what does that actually mean? I don't know, but it sounds so hardcore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, what? I don't... And then the, the line after that, it's not like it says anything about heaven swallowing the smoke after that. It's like, then the geek people began to construct a mound on a headland, high <laughs> and imposing, right? And then they, then they okay. buried him and no one really gives a shit. <laughs> so what did that line mean? I mean... If you want to take it at its most basic, I feel like you just say, and then Beowulf wants to have it. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> is being swallowed by heaven a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know, because, yeah, that, that it has this bit of a sinister edge to it. Mm-hmm. So let's get into uh, adaptations and, and things. There's not really that many, as you would think, but probably the most famous adaptation slash reinterpretation of the Beowulf story is Grendel by John Gardner, which was published in 1971, and as the title would suggest, gives us the story from the perspective of Grendel, turning him into a kind of weird anti-hero, and also potentially a communist and an anarchist. There's a lot going on. It's kind of mm-hmm. weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this Grendel is is isolated and he's lonely and it, it plays up that idea that he is the last of his kind and that his mom is, is almost like this other creature entirely. Like you said, like she's old, she's sort of insensible, she she's can't a, talk. One of the ways they describe her is a brim wolf, you know, like a sea wolf. You know, she's her emphasis is that she's a water demon. Right. Um, a lot since, of wolves. Yes, lots of wolves. Well, well, I mean, this is another thing I should point out. Wolf in Old English didn't just mean the animal wolf. It could also mean exile or outlaw. Ah. So that might help, you know, understanding of the meanings behind a lot of the ways those words are used in the poem. And on top of that, Beowulf himself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who's the Ex- real monster? Mm-hmm. Exile outcast person. <laughs> Not the exiled bees. <laughs> yeah, the, the exiled, exiled bees. bees. <laughs> <laughs> Get out of here, bees. <laughs> so yeah, the, this this Grendel is just like, he wants someone to, to relate to and he wants someone that he can connect with and he kind of wants to do that with humans, but they also kind of wig him out. So he usually just ends up killing them. Basically, he's just kind of miserable the whole book before getting killed by some unnamed geet asshole. <laughs> maybe, maybe Ben Ben Wolf, something like that. That is actually the name of the. I don't know if you're going to talk about this one, the Merwife. Oh no, it wasn't. Oh, this is a new adaptation. I'm actually oh. reading it now to teach it this summer in a class. Oh hell yeah! And Bring it in. it's uh, basically like suburbia as like. 
Hararat. It's even called Hararat Hall. And there is this veteran woman who was, I'm guessing, in Afghanistan or Iraq. I can't remember if it's even said. But she is like fake beheaded on television by the insurgents. And then she wakes up buried in sand six months pregnant. Whoa. Yeah. And so then she ends up in like an army hospital. She's clearly not being there for like her health. And so she escapes with some help, becomes a fugitive, hides up in this mountain outside of the suburban, like, whatever, hellscape. And that's where she raises her son. And then it becomes the son being interested in looking at the people down below. And the son, who's never mentioned, it's not in the poem, right? Of Whalefeo's character, whose name is Willa. And Grendel's mother is actually named. Her name is Dana. Oh, I thought she could um, name for once. Yeah, and it's just, it's it's absolutely fantastic. I haven't actually finished it, so I can't even spoil it for you. <laughs> but there is, like, you know, this anxiety about Dana protecting her son, Gren, from the outside world because people are not going to understand him. There is something physically different about him, although we don't get a full description of him. We know he's got claws. We know his skin's a little different. We know his eyes are glowing. But the sheriff, not the sheriff, or sheriff's deputy or somebody, comes for like an animal complaint from Willa, and it's Ben Wolf. (laughs) Just FYI, like that's why I thought about it. What's the name of the book? The Mere Wife or Merwife, I think M-E-R-E. Mare? Mare? I think Mare. Like like a mermaid, right? Like the Mare Wife. That sounds awesome. Mere. And I I hope I don't completely botch her name, but it's by Maria Davana Headley. I'm not familiar with her work, but it's beautiful. Like I've only read like the first 50 pages. I've already cried like four times. (laughs) All right, cool. That's awesome because I didn't know about that. It's awesome that you cried four times. (laughs) Emotions. DC Comics had a Beowulf title in 1975 that lasted all the six issues hmm. and then in, in between there's a bunch of shitty movies that no one's ever seen and the only one worth mentioning is from 1999 <laughs> and it stars uh, christopher lambert of highlander and mortal Kombat fame as the titular character in a sci-fi post-apocalyptic mad max beowulf where in true mad max fashion everyone looks like a leather daddy yeah, it's. I watched this in preparation to try to figure out which Beowulf movie I wanted my students to watch for Middle Ages at the Movies course at NYU. I think I might have to make my students watch it next time because it's it's like awesomely bad. It's one of those like if you want to have like an awesomely bad movie night, that's the movie to go to. It looks like that. It looks like a campy good time. Like the, within the first five minutes of the film, I was like, "What the fuck am I watching? And <laughs> why?" But it was worth it. And finally, the main one to discuss, the one we specifically went out of our way to watch, and we, we live-tweeted it, was 2007 Robert Zemeckis version. So the screenplay was written by none other than Neil Gaiman, and it had a pretty stacked cast. Uh, Ray Winstone as Beowulf, Anthony Hopkins as Hrothgar, Robin Wright as his wife, uh, Queen... What was it? Whale Uh John Malkovich as Unferth, which is just as good as you think it would be, mm. Brendan Gleeson as Wheelof, Crispin Glover as Grendel, and Angelina Jolie as Grendel's mom. So we can talk about it and we're absolutely going to talk about it. But first, I just want to give like a quick list of the major differences between the movie and the original story. So Beowulf, uh, instead of just being amazing warrior man, he's a liar and a horn dog. And those two things are inextricably linked because most of his lies are tied to his horniness. Mm-hmm. Hrothgar is a big, fat, naked drunk. <laughs> Yep. Grendel looks more like, kind of like Gollum, if he had some kind of unfortunate skin condition. And, oh yeah, he's got, he's got like a a horrible 
like like exposed eardrum growth. It it wobbles whenever they do music, and that's why he goes nuts, because it's just exposed, and it looks very icky. And yeah, he's just sort of more pathetic than scary. Grendel's mom is just Angelina Jolie, with the tail, gold boobs, high-heeled fucking feet, and a bizarre accent that doesn't sound like anything. She's like a sexy version of Tom Hanks in The Terminal. Yes. Can't <laughs> really exactly have a place there. Everybody knows that Tom Hanks had those the, that tail and those big boobs <laughs> in The Terminal. That's what made it so weird. <laughs> and perhaps most important, the movie decides that Grendel is actually the result of Hrothgar having sex with Grendel's mom and that he's all gross and feeble because Hrothgar is fat and sad and, and he's got bad sperm. And instead of murdering G-Mom, Beowulf also has sex with her. And then the dragon that he eventually kills and and also kills him is revealed to be a super buff golden man who was the result of G-Bomb and Beowulf's sex times and Beowulf's much more manly sperm. Can I kink shame Neil Gaiman? Can we we do that? Can I kink shame Neil Gaiman? I suppose. (laughs) I'm I'm kink shaming Neil Gaiman. (laughs) (laughs) For what exactly? All of it. Grendel's mother never actually dies in Zemeckis's. Well, version. no, yeah, well, because they and don't. So, he doesn't kill her. He fucks her. And then at the end, she's like in the water, you know, beckoning Wheelof, and he slowly starts walking to the water. So the cycle does. continues. That's true. It does. At the end, there's the notion that Pe- Peep's going to keep fucking Grendel's mom, and she's going to keep having weird monster babies. Um, this is why I like it, and I am one of the very few medievalists who actually like this film adaptation. Part of it is because it's very teachable in the sense that you know showing students what what they keep what they don't keep why they don't keep it but also you know when you take a poem like beowulf which is not very linear right like as you as you noted like there's this weird like going off into danish legendary historical something or other and then all of a sudden we have the dragon section well what neil gaiman does is he actually turns into a fairly linear cohesive narrative which makes sense and then what i actually really like is the fact that the overall moral of the story right is that Men will always do what they have to to retain power. Men right? will always um, put their dicks in things. <laughs> they will always put their dicks in things. But it's always like this this need for power, which is always their undoing, ultimately. Gaiman just happens to do it through, you know, a hyper-sexualized water demon <laughs> who just won't die. Who, who um, could imagine? Men want to fuck Angelina Jolie. <laughs> like, go figure. And of course, naturally, they had high heels back then. For feet. For feet. Her feet have high heels. For calf definition. How else are you going to seduce the men? I hate it so much. Oh my god, yes. The first time I saw that, I actually saw it in theater with my old English class in my master's program at Florida State. And we were just like all moaning and groaning at certain parts of the film. We were also uber epic nerds. And when the film first started, we all stood up and yelled, What? Because that's the first word of the of the, the poem, and we are completely dorky like that. Oh my god, you you, you Rocky Horror Picture showed it. Totally, yeah. Um, all right, well you just you you just ruined all the good, good jokes I had. <laughs> Where I just reduced everything down to monster banging. <laughs> well, it is about monster banging. I'm not going to deny that. <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that everybody keeps cheating on Robin Wright, and she's just sort of steadfast about it. She's yeah. just such a good wife. Yeah, she's the the silent, the meek, the the, the long suffering. Doesn't really seem to retain like any power whatsoever. Nope. The other thing to think about too is like what they do to Unferth in this film. 
<laughs> John Malkovich. <laughs> and he's also doing a real, an accent that's just completely bad. Like, I don't know where, what country he is in. Mm-hmm. I don't think he knows. Oh, that reminds me. So the other thing I wanted to mention is the fact that Old English is spoken in two different contexts in this movie. Did you guys actually notice this? Probably not. We were drinking heavily. Um, Grendel and his mother Oh, yes, that's true. He speaks Old English to his mom. And there's one other instance in which it happens. That I did not catch. So later, when Beowulf is older, and they're, like, doing the tale of Beowulf, and you've got, like, a dwarf acting it out in the background, they're speaking in Old English. Oh, yeah, that part I missed. Yeah, so you have, like, this idea of the monstrous body othered, again, through language, but then also this idea of the monstrous past also othered through language. Cool. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have anything of worth to add. <laughs> but yeah, that is interesting because I, I forgot, like I noticed at the time, Grendel's mom, Angelina Jolie, she just talks in a weird accent, but Grendel exclusively speaks in Old English. Yeah. And it just sounds like a bunch of like, because yeah. he has like this terrible voice. Yeah, which comes from his deformity, right? Yeah. Um, but that's the thing that I find. He also has a big dumb mouth. <laughs> well, it's one of the things I also find really interesting because if, if you read... Grendel and his mother as this other like kind of marginalized group of people then they're further marginalized not just by their bodies but by their their very language itself which is fairly applicable to many people today the one thing that I'll say that I think the movie does that is is interesting and and good is that it does bring some of those themes to to the surface, that it's not just, Beowulf is a big dick guy, he is really cool. It's like, Beowulf is a liar and he fucks everything. And it definitely, like, Grendel, even though we do watch him bite the heads off a bunch of dudes, he's sympathetic, he's really pathetic, you feel bad for him. And so you do have that thing of, like, is Beowulf a cool warrior? Mm -hmm. Or is he just a really strong dickhead? Yeah, I'm going to go with the latter. <laughs> he just um, can't help himself. <laughs> I mean, at least he didn't turn into a fat, bumbling, full drunkard mm-hmm. like Hrothgar. Yeah. but uh, I did not need to see that much naked mocap Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> I don't need the mocap part. Give me the real deal. <laughs> Give me that straight up Hopkins. <laughs> but yeah, that's it. Like, There's no real resolution to it. It's just this horrible threat that this will keep happening forever and ever and ever. There's still a woman out there. <laughs> Shit. What it makes me think of is under the skin. Oh no, yeah, that works. I gotta rethink of that movie and What is Under the Skin? Oh boy. Uh I think it's, it's based off a book. It's a but it's a movie and, and Scarlett Johansson's in it and she's a she's an alien and she uh, lures dudes into her alien murder house. Ooh. The visuals are, are very arresting and it's it's really fucking out there it's one of those movies where it's like i watched it and i was like okay like this was like objectively like good i think in the sense that it has all these different things going on and it's shot interestingly and it's fucking scary because it is a horror movie uh-huh. but i also never want to watch it ever again fascinating her <laughs> outer shell is scarlett johansson underneath she's like a black humanoid kind of shapeless kind of person like there's no face it's just like doll. And she do- uh, uh. I mean, if, if, <laughs> go watch Under the Skin if you if you have really? a good threshold for that kind of thing with like, and if you like horror and like sci-fi kind of things, it's it's a slow movie, but the tension keeps you going throughout. Definitely, we'll have to look that one up then. That actually has a lot in terms of, of marginalization and, and symbolism mm-hmm. and horrible bloodthirstiness and who are the real monsters at the very end there. Yeah, yeah, good poll. 
I know. It's making me think of this now. (laughs) And so that brings us to this point, the point in the show that we inevitably always get to, and that is, hey, RJ. So, Beowulf. Yep. Good or bad? Oh, Beowulf bad. (laughs) Grendel's mom, she gets it. She gets it. (laughs) Depending on the version, she gets more than others. Dinosaur Grendel's mom, can she get it? (laughs) Look, I mean, we discussed this before. You know, when it's these tales that have been around, oh... 1500 years and it's kind of hung around and be redone again and again i mean it gets asked to give into it that it's good i do think it's interesting the different versions and the very different takes especially the more modern ones but he was a hero who did heroic things some more heroic than others i suppose (laughs) but look a lot of it relates to us today who doesn't have that loud neighbor who doesn't have swimming competitions? They're motifs we still use, right? <laughs> like, I can just think about, oh, so Gattaca steals that part, right? <laughs> Who steals Loud Neighbors? Anything steals Loud Neighbors. Megan the steals fi- the Loud film Neighbors. neighbors. <laughs> the, right, the film Neighbors. You know that part where Seth Rogen gets pissed off at his Loud Neighbors and goes over and bites Zac Efron's head off. <laughs> I guess that's forgot. the movie that Carla wants to see. So, in short, four naked Beowulfs. Out of five? Glistening. Uh. <laughs> Naked Beowulfs. Mm. Hey, Megan. Yard. Beowulf. Beowulfy. Bee dog. Bee plus wolf equal bear. Exile of the bees. Your thoughts. Good or get rid of the bees. Not the bees. <laughs> no, we need... We, not the bees! There you go. Bury my eyes! Have you seen <laughs> The Wicker Man? Yeah, I just haven't seen it in a really long time. Okay. <laughs> that, like, that reference totally went <laughs> over my head. <laughs> So part of it is what you said, and the same thing that we, we did about We're Facing Eurydice. If something has existed this long, there is a reason. It resonates. It, it still, parts of it capture people's imaginations. I don't feel nearly as passionate about Beowulf as I, I do about or we're facing Eurydice, and maybe that's because of Hades Town. Maybe if someone makes a really awesome musical of Beowulf, <laughs> then I'll have more feelings about it. Personally, and I've said this before... I'm a dummy with a very short attention span. And there are a lot of chunks of this poem at me just reading it as a person and not a medievalist that is just like skip, 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 skip. Sick monster fight in an underwater cave with sea monsters and stabbing and like, fuck yeah. Skip, 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 skip. Fighting a fucking dragon and a barrow and it's a thing and everybody's left him but is there and the, and the... Skip, 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 skip. Well, I mean, to be fair, that's actually what a lot of professors do when teaching it in like a British literature one course. You don't read the whole thing. You read like the Grendel and Grendel monster bit. Um, Grendel's mother. Gren- Grendel's momster. Momster. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, I don't, I won't say they never, but they often just skip over those very bits for that reason. And I don't think there's anything wrong with this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry to anyone listening to this who's like, no, those bits are important and like <laughs> vital to the overall work, which they probably are. But right. if, if we're going to take it as a whole, then I'm like, I, I could read other stuff that have more ass kicking in it. <laughs> Fair. Hey, Carla. Yeah. I thought it was Dr. What happened? Hey, Dr. Carla Maria Thomas. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> How you doing? Good. Beowulf. Good or bad? Complicated. Wow, that's not the game. Yeah, no, that's not, that's not how we play this. You, you leave your nuanced shit somewhere else. 
Um, I'm going to offend people by saying I dislike Seamus Heaney's translation. Um, I appreciate the facing page edition with the translation. We don't know any better, so we're okay. just like, okay. <laughs> I know. I mean, I, I, the good thing about it is it's, like, it's one of the first translations um, that actually makes it poetic and enjoyable to read to a non-scholarly audience. However, I think Megan Purposes is nicer uh which is newer from like 2013 2014 also translated by a woman instead of another white dude if we're talking about me reading the original and actually getting all the nuance and complexity of the language and the beauty of it i'm gonna say good with the old english nah with a modern translation that's fair because you know a translation is, is always going to lose something and it's always going to have yeah. a, a level of bias. I was actually reading a really interesting article about uh, this woman and I can't remember her name because when do I ever remember anything that she's translating the Odyssey mm-hmm. and just talking about like these inherent differences and in things that we've come to accept as fact and how they're relayed in the story based on how a dude translated them. Exactly. And, yeah, and so confronting that sort of bias mm-hmm. um, in, inherent when you're like translating a work. Thank you so much yeah. for coming on and for teaching us things and for pronouncing names that I would have just destroyed. Just overall, this was a very educational experience that people don't normally get from us. <laughs> you're welcome. Thank you for having me. <laughs> if you love the show... Uh, leave us leave us reviews. Tell tell your friends. Tell your enemies. Make, tell your make them make them your friends. Frenemies. 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 Frenemies forever. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at OnaLitClassPod. You can check us out on Facebook. You can join our Facebook group uh, and just post a bunch of dumb literature memes. It's a very good time in there. Everybody's very nice. You can pledge to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash OnaLitClass. And you get access to bonus content, mini episodes. You get to vote on episodes that we do next. Uh, Beowulf was a voted episode nice. from our, our patrons. And you get, you know, you get cool stuff. You get like posters, stickers, and, and all that. So please, please do that. We would love it if you did that. And you can find links to everything and all the things and even more things at onolitclass.com. The next episode will be on February 21st. Until then, I'm Megan. I'm RJ. And I'm Dr. Carla Maria Thomas. We love you. (laughs) Bye. I helped that kid pass that economics exam. You did. Or their finance class, something like that. What? Yeah. It's a long story.